Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. William Randolph Hearst, he lived from 1863 to 1951. And during his time, he was one of the wealthiest and most powerful men of the 20th century. And at the height of his media career, he was worth over $500 million. Now, this is his house. He built an enormous castle. I mean, you can see it. It was huge. He built it in the hills near San Simeon, California, and it was more than 90,000 square feet. That's not a bad little shack, is it? That took 28 years to build. It is still, to this day, one of the most luxurious and nicest homes in North America. Now, Hearst, what he would do is he would often invite all the people from Hollywood, all the Hollywood elite, to come visit him in his castle. It was kind of a mark of status to be able to be invited to his castle for a weekend. And when guests arrived, they were informed of one very strict rule that he had. They were warned if they broke this rule, they would be immediately escorted off the property and never invited to return to this place again. And whenever the guests were in the presence of William Hurst, there was one word that they could never say. They could not mention death. Because Hurst, you see, he had a horrible phobia about it. He was so scared of death, he didn't want it mentioned around him. In fact, this guy was so afraid of it that when one of the palm trees died on his estate, the gardeners actually went up to it and painted its leaves green until it could be replaced when he was gone and he wasn't home. He did everything he could to ignore death. But even with all his money, even with all his wealth, even with his empire, he had built for himself and his castle. And all the things that money in this world can buy, he had the same problem everyone in this room has. He couldn't prevent his own death. And so on August 14th of 1951, he met death. I invite you to join me in Hebrews 2, where we are going to walk through a very fast-moving text this morning about the fear of death. Speaking of Christ, notice verse 5 and what it tells us. It says, For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. This is actually taking us back to the subject of chapter 1 in the book of Hebrews, that Jesus Christ is better than the angels. Notice this end time theme, the world to come. This is the future rule of the Son of God. God is not handing over this future to the angels. It is the coming kingdom of who? The coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now this is here in the text for a reason, because some of the branches of Judaism actually taught that Michael and his angels would rule over this coming kingdom. 
The angels certainly have a role right now. We see that in the book of Daniel. In this present world, they have a role. They serve God, and they will continue to serve God. But the coming kingdom will belong to the Son alone. No angel will rule over the entire world, not in this age or in the age to come. This is actually a reference to the second advent, the second coming of Christ, when Jesus returns to sit on the throne of David to rule over the Davidic kingdom, to fulfill the covenants and the promises of the Old Testament, meaning God is not done with the nation of Israel. But a person may wonder, as they're going through this, if God the Son is so much better than the angels, then why did he come to the earth as a man? Well, Hebrews answers in verse 6. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? Now, if you're following along in your Bible, you can see that the author in our text in these three verses is now quoting from Psalm 8. You see, the writer is actually telling us something. He's indicating to us that this is a messianic psalm that he's quoting. The Son of Man is a messianic title pointing to Jesus Christ. Jesus was made a little lower than the angels during his earthly ministry. Our next two verses. You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, have you ever wondered what this means exactly, that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels? Well, Jesus became a man. And right now, men are lower than the angels. Jesus chose to identify himself with mankind, not with the angels. You see, he came to die for the sins of man, not for the sin of fallen angels who actually fell into sin before we ever did. And angels, they have more power than us. They do not die like we do. They are spiritual beings. When a man dies as a physical being, he is separated from his body. You know, we're limited to life on earth. We're limited to where we can go on this planet, to where our bodies can take us. Angels right now as spirit beings are able to enter into the courts of heaven, into the very presence of God. But you see, the Son of Man rose again, and when Christ ascended after his resurrection, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of the Father, meaning he once again received, was crowned the honor and glory that was due to him. And the time is coming when every created being will bow to the authority when he returns. The rest of verse 8 tells us this. It says, For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. So here's where faith comes in. Believers do not yet see Christ glorified on earth. We look around and say, hey, wait a minute. If Christ is God, what's happening? Why is this world always falling apart? We don't see him glorified on earth yet. But see, with the eye of faith, we look forward. We trust the scriptures that Christ is glorified right now in heaven. Verse 9. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Now, Jesus was crowned with glory and honor because he endured death. God is self-existent. What that means is he has life in himself. 
God is not dependent upon anyone or anything outside of himself for the continuance of his infinite, eternal being. Let me say it like this. God cannot die. God cannot die. He had to become a man in order to experience death and to gain the victory over the penalty of sin through death. He became a man and he died for man, even though man did not deserve this mercy. Christ tasted death. He experienced physical death. He died to remove the penalty of death from the destiny of men. Jesus suffered death because it was God's will for him to taste death for every single person. This was God's purpose in the incarnation. Now this means that Christ's death was for every person that will walk on this earth. By the grace of God, he tasted death for everyone. He paid the penalty for the sins of all men, but that does not mean that all men will come to faith in him. His death was sufficient for all, but efficient only for those with faith in Christ in his death and resurrection. You know, we look at death and the Bible paints a very ugly picture of it. The Bible tells us that death is an enemy that is to be feared. It says that it's ugly. It is a tough enemy. It destroys. It's repulsive. But it doesn't have to be the last word. Thank God for a Savior who could claim, I am the resurrection and the life. The Bible is about redemption, the redemption of man. It is about Christ, and it is also about the future. That future is centered on Jesus Christ, centered on his coming work, his coming kingdom. And the power of sin and death, it's been broken, and his redeemed are not yet fully shown the intended glory that awaits for us in the future. You know, we trample the blood of the Son of God, if we honestly think that we are forgiven simply because we're just sorry. We're sorry like little kids for our sins. You see, our finite minds cannot fathom what hell would be like under the wrath of God. The only explanation for the forgiveness of God is the death of Jesus Christ. It is not earned, but accepted. The atonement is a propitiation whereby God, through the death of Christ, makes an unholy man holy. This is the power of the cross. Christ became sin for you, for me. He took the shame, bore our wrath. That is why we can stand here today forgiven. The benefit to us of the propitiation of our sin means that we don't have to fear God's wrath for our sin. And as the redeemed in Christ, we can take confidence in the salvation that has been so freely given to us. And that is where the text takes us in verse 10. And what the author is about to do in the text is expound upon the teaching of verse 9 of the grace of God. And he says this, he says, For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now here is where the text is taking us. It is about to tell us of the future glory of the Son. It's telling us this so that we actually as believers appreciate the Son. We understand our own future with Him. God wants you to understand your future with Him. And the writer did this so that believers would continue to live by faith because the Son is not the only one that God intends to glorify. His people with faith in Him will be glorified. 
So verse 10, it starts out referring to him, referring actually to God the Father, an author or captain here in your text, depending on your translation. That is Jesus Christ, God the Son. And the idea is that he is the one that led his people. It means Christ is our ruler. Christ is our redeemer because he alone can lead men through death. If Jesus would not have broken a new trail, that's kind of how the text is saying it here. If Jesus would not have broken a new trail, no one else would have. No one else could have. God the Father charted the path of the Son to the glory through suffering. And he's doing the same thing right now for you and for me. We must go through suffering. We must go through life in this world before we get to glory. And Christ, it says in the text, can perfectly help us through our suffering. Why? Because he charted the course. He went first. He marched down that road for us. Perfect here, meaning that the human experiences of Christ could only be completed through the sufferings of the death. He became a perfect savior by his death because his death was needed in order to redeem us. He couldn't redeem us without dying first. Acts 2 tells us that the death of Christ was according to the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. To lead us perfectly, Christ chose to come and live out the determined plan of God the Father. His human body became the vehicle for his suffering and for his death, bringing many sons to glory. It's not a reference here actually to taking believers up to heaven. It's bringing his people who will suffer to future glory, our glorification in the coming kingdom of God. You see, the text is building this strong argument for us, telling us that the Lord Jesus, he set the path for us. It is a path that we must follow. And he understands our pain because he tasted death. He suffered, he bled, and he died for us. You know, Christ was not content to be crowned alone with glory and honor. He wanted his people to share his glory with him. Those who will share that glory are seen here as sons. Because it was God's eternal purpose to identify many as sons with his son in glory. Christ so closely identified with us that he now he looks to us, you and me, as sons, brothers and sisters. But this was all foretold in the Old Testament, and that's what Hebrews is getting at. The union between us, the saved, the redeemed, and the Savior, it was anticipated long ago and foretold in the Old Testament. And so the author, again, he quotes the Old Testament to show that those identified in Christ with his people are here foretold in the text. And he says first in verse 11, he says, For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all what? One, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren. This is the unity between Jesus Christ and his believers. Jesus will not feel ashamed to call sanctified believers his brethren when he returns and he leads us to glory. And so here comes these quotations in the text. Watch it with me. He says, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. 
Now, this first part of this is actually coming from Psalm 22, which is another messianic psalm, a psalm that is, is about Christ, that describes the suffering of Christ. I encourage you to go home this afternoon and read Psalm 22. It's a beautiful text. It, it describes the suffering of Jesus Christ so many years before it ever happened. And the second part of the quote is from Isaiah 8. See, when the Lord Jesus returns, he will have no problem, Hebrews is telling us, he'll have no problem identifying himself with the people of God. And the focus on the first part of this is that death has made us set apart. His death has made us holy. And it's because of his death that we can even have fellowship with Jesus Christ and with each other. We've been set aside to do his will. In John 20, Jesus said this. He said, go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and what? Your father and to my God and your God. You see, we have the same father in heaven. So Jesus can call us his brethren. Jesus reveals the father to us. But it is a relationship that is based on trust. And that's why we see that in the text. That's what the second part of it is telling us. That Jesus, first of all, trusted the Father. God the Son trusted God the Father. And we trust in Christ. And then we see that based on his death, because of our faith, this means we are children of God, telling us that he will provide a future for us. He's making the way. He's establishing the path. He's making a home for us in glory. What parent, what parent traveling ahead of their children would not provide a way for them? He's preparing a place for you, for me, for us. And he has much said it. You remember the words of John 14 where he said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That what? That where I am, there you may also be. Edgar Harrell was one of the 300 survivors of the sinking of the USS Indianapolis. That was, if you haven't studied that, that's the last ship that was sunk by an enemy contact in World War II. It's quite a dramatic tale. 600 of the 900 men who survived the sinking of the ship were stranded in the water for a period of five days. Many of them only had a life vest on. All faced thirst. All of them faced hunger. Some were wounded. They battled dehydration and they battled the sharks. Every one of them during that time came to face to face with their own fear and with their own mortality. Edgar said this as he wrote about it, about those days alone in the ocean. He said, clearly there was no atheist in the water on that day. Gone was that horrible attitude of pride that deceives men into thinking that there is no God, or if there is, that they don't need God. You see, when a man is confronted with death, it is the face of Almighty God that he sees, not their own. Fear of death is so natural to us. 
Fear of death is so natural to the fallen man. And pride, we try to, with our pride, we try to hide it. And we try to attempt to ignore our own death. But death is coming for every single person. And thankfully, the text says that we no longer need to fear it. And this is just one of the truths that's coming up now in our text. Watch it with me in the next part. It says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who, through fear of death, were all their lifetime subject to bondage. We could never redeem ourselves. There's no way we could ever do that. We could never satisfy the righteous demands of a holy God. And since God could not die, the Father sent the Son to become a man in order that he might pay the penalty for our death, for our sin, for all of us in this room. And that is why Christ had to come. That is why Christ took on a human body. You see, the Bible's reminding us here that we are actually living right now on Satan's turf. That's where we live. Ever since the fall, this world and the system that is behind it, it's it's been his territory, really, since the fall of man. He is, the Bible says, the prince of the power of the air, the god of this age, the ruler of this world. That is why every worldview that is out there, apart from the biblical faith, it opposes the plan and it opposes the purpose of Jesus Christ. And that is why when we belong to him, we are out of place in this earth. We're out of place. We're foreigners in a land that is underneath a hostile rule. And that's what makes our lives so difficult. But the good news is that when the time is right, Jesus will deliver us. This is where our hope needs to be. Now keep it in the context and watch the flow. He says, referring to believers like Christ, the children of God have partaken in flesh and blood. We share the limitations of humanity. But Jesus, Jesus broke the power that Satan has over believers when he died and then rose again. You see, what he's saying is that Satan can no longer enslave us. He's been defeated. Christ's death was a divine judgment on Satan. Jesus defeated Satan at the cross in order that he might break Satan's rule over us. Here's what this is saying. Even when you didn't know Christ, you knew that one day you would die. That was tucked into your mind. You knew that somewhere in your head. God put that into every single man. The fear of death grips the sinful state of man. It's built into his conscience. Mankind knows that some sort of judgment is coming someday. It will follow death. And this fear of death, it enslaves unbelievers because they know in the back of their minds that death is coming. But when there is no hope in Jesus Christ, no hope of eternal life, no thought of being reconciled to a holy and righteous God, what do people do? Well, they live for themselves. They live for today. They do anything they can to extend their own life. Hebrews is telling us that the redeemed believer in Jesus Christ need not have that same type of fear of death as an unbeliever. Hebrews is telling us that we don't have to fear it as, as like the world does. And that changes everything in our lives. Christ can remove the dread of death. We no longer have to live just for ourselves. We no longer need to put ourselves first. 
And the great irony of this text is that the children of God, the ones liberated by God from the shackles of enslavement, often live their lives like a slave, paralyzed because of the fear of death. Now the power of death here in the text, this is not the authority to kill people. That belongs to God. But there's a power spoken of here that has been taken away from Satan because he likes to use the fear of death to enslave us. He has been defeated. The fact that the resurrected Christ is in heaven, that should actually give us assurance. That should actually give us hope. Revelation 1.18 teaches us that Christ, Jesus Christ, is the one with the keys of Hades and of death. 1 Corinthians 15 teaches us that the sting of death has been removed. The immortal and incorruptible body of the resurrected Christ, that is a guarantee that believers will have the same type of body when Jesus comes to raise the dead. You see, we can have joy knowing that at the moment of our physical death, we're going to immediately go into the presence of our Savior. And our fear of death, it shouldn't be the same as that of the unredeemed. Verse 16. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Now, the seed of Abraham, when you read in the scriptures, you got to remember that there's two types of descendants of Abraham in scripture. Isaiah 41 tells us that the Hebrew people are the physical descendants of Abraham. But the other kind is mentioned in Galatians 3.29, where it says, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is actually a reference to the spiritual descendants of Abraham, believers in Jesus Christ. You see, Galatians 3.7 teaches that the sons of Abraham are those with faith, people like Abraham, both Jews and Gentiles who have placed their faith in God. And the idea back in Hebrews is the contrast between the angels and the believers. Christ came to the aid of the spiritual descendants of Abraham. He didn't come to the aid of the angels. You see, the son humbled himself in his incarnation. He took on flesh and blood. Christ did not deliver the fallen angels from their sin, from their punishment. And so recognize the privilege we have because of the grace of God. Let this humble you in your walk and in your life instead of fill you with pride. In order to deliver the people of Abraham, he had to become the son of David, the son of Abraham. In our last two verses, it says, Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he's able to aid those who are being tempted. The Bible is teaching us that Jesus had a complete and perfect humanity. He walked and talked like an ordinary man, yet without sin. Meaning, if you picture Jesus, he didn't have some halo around his head. He didn't have some sort of glow coming from his body. He came in the likeness of men. The Bible's teaching us that there are two reasons for the incarnation of Christ. First, it opened the door for Christ to become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. The Son was faithful. He remained steadfast to the end. He didn't flinch. He did what God the Father had called him to do. He fulfilled everything that the Father had called for him to do. And Jesus identifying himself with us, he made it possible 
for his ministry as a high priest. And the second reason for the incarnation was so that Jesus could make atonement, propitiation, big fancy word there, propitiation for the sins of the people, meaning the satisfaction of the claims of a holy and righteous God against sinners who have broken his law. Christ satisfied the righteous demands of God for sin. The wrath of God has been appeased. His sacrifice actually satisfied the justice and holiness of a righteous God. The place of propitiation, if you remember from your Old Testament, it was the mercy seat. And you remember what would happen on the Day of Atonement once a year, the high priest of Israel stood on behalf of the guilty people and he would go into the most holy place and he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice upon the mercy seat that sat on the Ark of the Covenant. Now that was the most significant day on Israel's calendar for worship. And the cross of Christ became the place of sacrifice and propitiation. His death fulfilled what was being foreshadowed on the Day of Atonement. And if you have in your mind just this picture, uh, the idea of Jesus fulfilling the demands of an angry God, the truth is that the everlasting love of God led him to provide the payment for our sins. Doesn't Romans 5, 8 say, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But it goes further than that because verse 18 in Hebrews insists on the real humanity of Jesus. Because Jesus walked this earth, because he suffered, because he faced temptation, he can help us when we are tempted. And the wording here is that when we struggle, Christ can run to our aid. When we are crying out for help, his victory over sin, his victory over temptation allows him to guide us as we walk hand in hand with the Savior. We suffer because we live in an unredeemed body, in an unredeemed world, with an unredeemed sin nature. But Jesus participated in our human nature and in our sufferings, on earth so that he could be a sympathetic mediator between God and man. Jesus didn't have a fallen sin nature, but he did live in a body, in a human body, in a fallen world. And so he understands our weakness and he intercedes for us in the presence of the Father. And his sympathy does not depend on personal experience of sin, but upon the experience of the strength of sin. He knows how dangerous sin can be. The testing in view was the temptation to depart from the will of God. On the side of Christ, it was the temptation to depart from the will of the Father. Jesus was tested. If you remember, he was tested in the garden. He was tested on the cross. But what did Satan find with Jesus? He found out that even with all the pressure that Satan could throw at him, Jesus could not be made to sin. Jesus chose the way of suffering instead of sidestepping the hard places. He has been tested more than we will ever experience. And because of this, the Bible's telling us here that he's able to respond to our cries for help. You see, it's not wrong. It's not wrong to, to be tempted. It's not a sin to be tempted in your life, but it is wrong when you yield to that temptation. And that's where some of us fail. When we are tempted, we think that we've already been defeated. We think that Christ has abandoned us or that we cannot turn to him for strength. The help that is being offered here in Hebrews chapter 2 is when we're being tempted, we can overcome the test without giving in to sin. We can gain the victory when we live for the will of the Lord. Turn 
quickly to him when you're tempted, knowing that his grace is sufficient and that his strength is made perfect in our weakness. From 1954 to 1989, South American country Paraguay suffered, if you know your history of South America, they suffered brutally at the hands of, of a dictatorship where opponents to the government, they were jailed, they were tortured, and they were killed. One of the many families there told their story of what happened under that dictatorship. The father was a doctor, and he spoke out. He dared to speak out against the military regime and all of its abuses that happened. And the local police, they took their revenge on him, not by doing anything to him, but by arresting his teenage son and torturing his teenage son to death. Now, the people of this town wanted to stand together. They wanted to turn the, the boy's funeral into a huge protest march. But this doctor, he had a different idea. At the funeral, what he did was he displayed his son's body just as he had found it in the jail cell. Son's body was naked, scarred from the electric shocks, the cigarette burns, and all the beatings. And as the villagers filed past the corpse one by one, which was not laying in a coffin, it was on the blood-soaked mattress from the prison. This was the strongest protest that one could think of. Because what did it do? I want you to think of this with me. It put injustice directly on display. And isn't that what God did at Calvary? You see, the cross that held the body of our Lord, naked, marked with scars, it exposed all the violence and the injustice of this world. You see, at once, the cross revealed what kind of world that we have. And it also revealed something else. It revealed what kind of God we have. A world that is completely unfair, always will be until Christ comes back. But there's a God of sacrificial love. You see, when we suffer, he understands. When we give in to the temptation of the world and we fall flat on our faces because it's going to happen, he doesn't just rub our faces in it. He offers us forgiveness. He is there to strengthen us because he already chose to love us. He already chose to die for us. He has paid the price for our redemption. He steps into our trials and temptations, not to condemn us, but to help us. And when we're tempted, the message is cry out for help, for his strength and for his grace. Not living constantly under the fear of death, but instead looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.